I want to kind of start with a very broad picture for you. You're a a generation of young people who don't really know what war is. You don't know the cost of war. You know it from CNN or Fox News or something like that. You know it from a distance. And sometimes you hear the news and you hear about two or three Americans that were killed. Uh, Maybe an IED blew up or maybe uh, they went down in a helicopter crash or maybe they were killed by terrorists. And uh, we hear about that all the time. We have at Grace Community Church a number of uh, special operations people. We have some people who are snipers in the military, and it's uh, it's a kind of different war than generations past. So uh, you don't understand what what real war is and how it demonstrates the depravity of man. So let me give you a little bigger picture. Go back to 1939, and back to the year that that I was born, and back to World War II. 80 million people were killed, 80 million. That would wipe out the top 25 cities in the United States. It's as if the 25 largest cities in America disappeared in about four years. 80 million people were killed. One of the devastating realities is that 50 to 55 million of those people were civilians. They weren't even engaged in battle. The Germans and the Russians in the killing grounds between Germany and Russia slaughtered 13 million civilians themselves. Hitler killed 6 million Jews. There were 25 million deaths of the military. 80 million people died in a handful of years. It's incomprehensible to us. Twenty-six million of them were part of the Soviet Union. It decimated a massive amount of the population of the world. At that time, there were about five million people who were taken prisoners by the Russians and the Germans and the Japanese. The war went on in Europe and it went on in the Pacific at the very same time. Distant relative of mine, Dr. General Douglas MacArthur, was the commander in the Pacific. The Japanese were fighting the Americans. About a half a million Americans died, but in order to kill a half a million Americans, two million Japanese died. It was a massacre of Japanese soldiers. The Japanese also took prisoners. Uh, Some people that I know who are now with the Lord were in those prison camps. They were called concentration camps or POW camps. There's a wonderful story that came out of one of those that is pretty stunning. There was a famous Japanese commander who was over the concentration camp, as they were called, where they concentrated the population of the POWs. He was described as ruthless, brutal, murderous, and a torturer. His name was Kenoshi. He was so brutal that many of the people in the camps died, of course, and he starved them to the point where they were so ravenously hungry that they would eat anything. So he fed them rice still in its shell. Razor-sharp shells 
caused internal bleeding. The prisoners had no tools to shell the rice. They were so hungry that they ate the unshelled rice, and literally it became a death sentence. It shredded their internal organs. Kenoshi hated the Americans with such a passion that he chose every imaginable and unimaginable device to kill them. Such was his hate for the Americans that were in his control. The prisoners in Kenoshi's camp were liberated by MacArthur, February 24, 1945. On that day that they were liberated, Kenoshi had planned to murder the rest of them that were still alive. And then the troops, the American troops showed up, and he ran from the hated Americans for his life. Years after World War II, he was found. He was a gardener at a golf course in Manila in the Philippines. When they found him, they arrested him. The American government arrested him, tried him, and hanged him for massive murderous war crimes. Before his execution, he said this, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. And they said to him, how did you come to that? He said, I was deeply affected by the testimony of the Christians that I persecuted. How powerful a testimony is that? A hated enemy who despised Americans literally was led to Christ by the testimony of their faith. What kind of a life is that that can have that kind of effect? That's power, isn't it? That's the power of influence. What is it about Christians that's different? Josh said last night that um, everybody worships. Obviously not everybody worships Christ. There are a lot of other gods to choose from. You could choose Allah, or you could choose one of 10,000 Hindu gods, or you could choose Buddha, any other god. that They're all over the world. They have been through all of human history. Or you could choose to be an atheist and worship yourself. But what is it about Christ that is so compelling? What is it about Christ that can cause someone who hates a person to embrace the faith of that person by the sheer power of that person's testimony? And why Christ? What's so special about Him? I want you to open your Bible. I hope you have your Bible with you. If you don't, God have mercy on your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. Grab your Bible. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, I want to talk about the distinctive marks, privileges 
of being a Christian that lead to the kind of life that has an impact even in the most difficult circumstances. And I, I want you to begin by going to 1 Peter 2.12. And I want to take you into the verse to a little phrase, so that, so that. Do you see it there? 1 Peter 2.12, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You are to live a life, a so-that kind of life, in the very thing in which the enemies of Christ and the enemies of God and the enemies of the gospel and the unbelievers, the very things they slander you for are overruled by your good deeds as they observe them so that they glorify God in the day of visitation. This defines the purpose of your life in the world. Your life is a so-that life. You are to keep your behavior excellent among the nations so that. That's why we're here. In the very thing in which they slander you, in which they persecute you, the things they say against you, those things are literally overturned because of your good deeds as they observe them. What was going on in the early church to whom Peter was writing? Those early Christians were, were accused of rebellion, rebellion against the government, rebellion against Caesar because they wouldn't worship Caesar as Lord. They worshiped Jesus Christ as Lord. They were accused of terrorism. They were accused of burning down Rome. They were accused of atheism because they had no idols and no interest in emperor worship or any of the gods of the Romans, the Greeks. They were accused of cannibalism because of a misunderstanding of eating and drinking the Lord's flesh and blood at the Lord's table. They were accused of immorality because they had such love for one another that was twisted and perverted. They were accused of literal insurrection and doing damage to social structure by making slaves equal to masters. The early church Christians were slandered then for rebellion, terrorism, atheism, cannibalism, immorality, and insurrection. There they were living in the world with all of these accusations being hurled at them on a regular basis, and in the process, they were being killed, they were being imprisoned, they were being executed, they were being burned at the stake. But by their good deeds, at the same time as they were being observed, they overturned that animosity, and the very people who persecuted them glorified God in the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? It's the day God visits. Old Testament, it's a term for judgment. It's a term for the final tribunal when you stand before God. In the day of visitation, 
they end up glorifying God. When it comes time for for judgment, they glorify God. In other words, they show up on the right side at the end like Kenoshi did. The, The very people he persecuted, the very people he despised, the very people he hated, treated cruelly, were living a testimony that overturned his hatred and brought him to Christ. Look, we know we're going to be persecuted. We know we're going to be resented. We know we're going to be hated. Because the world hates God, Christ, the truth, the gospel, righteousness, loves sin. So how can we live a life that can cause someone in the day that they face God to give Him glory, literally to be received into His kingdom? What are the marks of a Christian that cause a life with that influence? Well, let's back up then to verse 4. And uh, I don't know how far we're going to get this morning in this. When does this session end? 2, 2.15? Okay. No, just kidding. Um, 11.30 or something like that? Okay. We won't go that long. All right. What marks Christians? And th- this is profoundly significant for you, for all of us. What I'm going to tell you now is essentially the privileges you have as a believer. These are the things that mark your life and give it an unparalleled, unequaled influence. Let's start at verse 4. And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, and we'll stop there. What is that about? Let's take the first phrase. How does verse 4 begin? And what? Coming to Him. What makes believers unique is that we have come to Christ. Let's call this union with Christ. This is is something you want to write down in your notes. Here's the first privilege of a worshiper of Christ, union with Christ and coming to Him. When you become a Christian, it isn't that you join an organization. It isn't that you become a part of a denomination. It isn't that you become uh, some kind of religious person and identify with some religious structure, it is that you come to Him. We talk about that, coming to Christ, come to Christ. Come unto Me, Jesus said, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Union with Christ. To be a Christian means you have come to Him. And do you remember? that it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. You literally come to Him. You come into union with Him. There's a sense in which you don't know where you end and you begin. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. 
I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. Paul says his prayer for the believers in Galatia was that Christ would be fully formed in them. This is not about something outside of you. It is about a union that is literally inside of you. You come to Him. The book of Hebrews says this in this language. Three times in the book of Hebrews it says, let us draw near, let us draw near, let us draw near. You're not joining an organization. You're not kind of identifying yourself with a religion. You're coming to Christ. You're coming to Him. It is a conscious drawing near. You come into union with Him. Nothing is more definitive of what it is to be a Christian than to say you are one with Jesus Christ. It's not clear where you end and He begins. It is that much of a union. First Corinthians 16, uh, First Corinthians 6, 17, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit indivisible. You are, in a sense, indivisible from Christ. This is pretty stunning because you could well expect holy God to be unwilling to enter into such a union with an as yet unredeemed person. You are redeemed in the inner man. You are unredeemed in your flesh. But this is the magnanimous grace and mercy of God that Christ joins Himself with you in a living union so that you don't know where you end and He begins. For to me to live is what? Christ. The habitual experience of the believer is a constant communion with the living Christ with whom He is one in life. When you study the New Testament, keep that in your mind. As you read through passage after passage, you will discover this idea of being one with Christ is everywhere. We died with Him, we rise with Him, we live with Him. He lives in us, we live in Him. His power is ours. He disperses His life to us. It is the very life of God and the soul of the believer. We are in union with Christ. That can't be said of Hinduism. No Hindu is in union with any of the false gods. Can't be said of Islam. God is to be avoided even if you're a Muslim. You have no connection to Him at all. You're simply under fear of His threatening power. But believers come to Christ. Now let's follow this union a little bit in the way that Peter lays it out, coming to Him as to a living stone, a living stone, lithos, a living, immovable, solid rock. It is a stone shaped and worked by God. This speaks of the strength, the foundation, the immovability of the person of Jesus Christ. But it is more than that. You will notice. It is a stone that is, go down to um, verse 6, it is a choice stone, it is a precious corner stone. 
It is a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. When they built buildings in ancient times, they had a cornerstone. A cornerstone set all the angles. It, it set all the angles going this way and all the angles going up as well. All, the, the symmetry of the building, the continuity of the building, the integrity of the building, the dimensions of the building were all determined by the cornerstone. It had to be a perfect stone. Christ is that perfect stone in the temple of God, which is the church of which we are a part. So we come to Him who is a living stone. Now we know stones aren't living. That's, uh, that's basically an oxymoron. A stone is a dead thing. It's an inert thing. It's an inanimate thing. But here is a living stone. The stone lives because it not only sets all the angles for the temple of God, but it infuses into the temple all the life of God. It is a living stone. That living stone is Jesus Christ. He is God. He is that eternal life, 1 John 5 says. So the stone not only sets all the angles for the building of the temple of God, but it literally pours life into all the subsequent stones that build that temple to its completion. Verse 4, the stone is choice, the stone is precious in the sight of God. It's the perfect stone. And you also, verse 5, as living stones. There again is the emphasis on the union with Christ. We are living stones because He communicates His life to us. He is the living stone. He communicates His life to us. We become living stones. If He is a stone, we are stones. If He's a living stone, we are living stones. This is to say that we are in Him. We share His life. That's why all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies are ours in Christ. All that He has, He communicates to us. All that is true of His life becomes true of us. One way to say it would be to say all spiritual privileges are in that union with Christ. It's not just, and this is where Josh was talking last night about false converts, it's not about just believing that something happened in history concerning a person, Jesus Christ. It's about being in union with Him. It's about coming to Him. It's about embracing Him as Lord and Savior in the full sense. Now this choice and precious stone has been rejected. You look down again into verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected this became the very cornerstone. Rejected by men, rejected by Israel, rejected by the world, Christ is still rejected today. But nonetheless, He is choice and precious in the sight of God. How precious is Christ? There's only one God. And here's what God said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. There's only one God, the one true and living God is the only God. All the rest are demonic fabrications or human inventions, all false gods spawned by hell and fallen creatures. There's only one true God, and the one true God says there's only one true stone. There's only one true life-giving Savior. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The very one that people hate is the one God loves. The very one that people reject is the one God has chosen. 
1 Corinthians 16, 22 sums it up this way, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. That's eternal damnation for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how precious He is. He is the precious one because God has chosen Him. He has, on the cross, Peter says earlier in chapter 1, shed His precious blood. He is precious, priceless, of inestimable value. He is that treasure in the field. He is that pearl of great price, so precious that you sell everything for Him. One God, one precious stone, the Son of God. When you come to Him, you then become, as He infuses His life into you, a living stone. You derive your character from Him. You derive your life from Him. You are called what He is called, a living stone, because you are one with Him. Colossians 3.3 puts it this way, Christ who is our life. And as such, back to verse 5, you are being built up as a spiritual house. This is the church. This is the temple of God. This is the spiritual temple in which Christ lives in His people. This is an incredibly important foundational understanding of what it is to be a Christian. We know that Scripture says that our body is the temple of God, temple of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6. But collectively, as a church, as the redeemed, we are the living stones who receive our life from the living cornerstone, and together we constitute a temple collectively in which the living stone Christ Himself pours through His life. This is the church. That's the foundation of your worship and that's the foundation of your pursuit of holiness. Since you are one with Christ, don't join yourself to a harlot, Paul says. You're joining Christ to a harlot. Whatever you do, you drag Christ into. Whatever you think, whatever you say, whatever behavior you engage in, You drag Christ into that because you can't separate yourself from Him. Positive side, he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The negative side is, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be there. That's the foundation of our pursuit of holiness. When we say we want to glorify Christ, we mean we don't want to drag Him into anything that dishonors Him. So understanding the privilege of being a Christian is initially to understand that you are one with the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. You literally drive your life and your character from Him. That was obvious to the early world around Christianity because it wasn't long until they began to call believers in Christ little Christs. That's what Christian means. Christians. They meant it as a kind of a pejorative term, a derogatory term, but it was true. They were, in a sense, little Christs. Christ was living in them. And it's the power of that union that can cause a man like Kenoshi or anybody else in circumstances like that to literally become 
attacked, attracted to the God of the people he hates with a passion because Christ is being manifest through them so that one day when his time for divine judgment comes, he gives glory to God. He ends up not at the great white throne judgment to be sent to hell forever, but at the Bema judgment for the rewards of those who love Christ. There's a second privilege that follows along with this. It's um, in verse 5. You not only are one with Christ, but let's say it this way, you have access to Christ. You have access to Christ. And you have constant access to Christ. I know that in your world there are a lot of people you'd probably like to meet. There are a lot of people that um, hold some kind of interest for you in life, and you'd say, boy, I'd love to meet that kind of person. Uh, I'd love to have a relationship with that person. I'd love to be a friend of that person. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the living stone, the divine Redeemer is your constant companion, and you have 24-7 for the rest of your life total access to Him. That is in the phrase, verse 5, that you have been built together as a holy house, a spiritual house, for a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now you remember in the Old Testament, there was a priesthood, right? There was a priesthood. Did the priests have access to God? Well, in a spiritual sense, they did. But it was pretty clear that God was communicating to them that there was no constant access. In fact, God dwelt symbolically in the Holy of Holies, right? In the tabernacle and the temple, in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim. And God came down and met there once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest. The high priest was the only one in all of Israel and only once a year who had access to God. And before he could go in, he had to go through some ceremonies and some sacrifices to cleanse himself. And he went in and he put bells on his garment because if the bell stopped ringing, they knew God had killed him. It was that dangerous to go into the presence of God. You could die. People did. Manoah came home and said to his wife, well, prepare the funeral, I'm going to die. Why are you going to die? I saw God. You saw God, you're going to die? Yeah, because if I saw Him, He saw me. I saw holiness, He saw sin, I'm dead. I'm going to die. Prophets in the Old Testament fell over like dead men when they saw God. John in the New Testament fell over like a dead man when he saw God. Once a year, one man went into the Holy of Holies to stand before God, and they wanted to be sure he wasn't killed by God, so they put bells on his garment so they could hear him still moving around. In the Old Testament system, God was not accessible, not even to the priests, and certainly not to the people. In fact, when God came down on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, God said, don't come near the mountain. If you come near the mountain, you'll die. 
you'll die. And now all of a sudden, look at this. When you come to Christ, you become a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You have complete access. As a believer, you're part of a holy priesthood. If you look at the Old Testament and just think about the priests, here here are the ten things that defined a priest. Chosen by God, went through a ceremony of cleansing from sin, prepared for duty, anointed for service, trained to function, committed to obedience, devoted to Scripture, faithful to walk with God. And finally, they had to be marked by having a righteous impact on people. Chosen by God, cleansed from sin, prepared for duty, anointed for service, trained for function, committed to obedience, devoted to Scripture, walking with God, having a righteous influence on people. Those were the ten requirements of Old Testament priests. And even then, with all that, had not the access to God. That was only the high priest once a year. Now all those virtues apply to us. We have been chosen by God. Through faith in Christ, we have been cleansed from sin. We have been prepared by the Holy Spirit through His gifts and empowering for duty. We are anointed for service. We are trained by the Word of God to function effectively. We are devoted to obedience. We have a high regard for Scripture. We walk with God in the power of the Spirit, and we impact sinners by Christ moving through us. And we have 24-7 constant access to God as a holy priesthood. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. Christ gave a blood sacrifice. We give a spiritual sacrifice. What, what do we give? What sacrifices do we give? Sacrifice of our lips, even praise to God. Worship, that's a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15. Um, sacrifice of self, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Prayer, prayer is a sacrifice raised up to God, Revelation 8, 3 says. Your good deeds, Hebrews 13, 16, those are sacrifices offered to God. Your love, Ephesians 5, 2, is a sacrifice offered to God. And when you lead someone else to Christ, you are literally offering a sacrifice of praise to Him through the salvation of other, that other person that God has used you to bring about. We live our whole lives worshiping, committing ourselves, praying, praising, doing good deeds, loving leading people to the knowledge of Christ. All these are spiritual sacrifices, and we bring them all into the presence of God. This morning when you were singing those songs, if your heart was really worshiping God, you were a priest who went into the Holy of Holies. You had full access to the Holy of Holies to bring your sacrifice of praise. And when you cried out in prayer and asked the Lord to meet a need in your life, you had full access to the presence of Jesus Christ. And all of this is made possible, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Do you see it there? Through Jesus Christ. It was only through Jesus Christ that there could be more than one person a year going into the presence of God. Now through Christ, we all have constant access. In the name of Christ, we come boldly to the throne of grace. The book of Hebrews says, come boldly. 
Christ invites you to come boldly into the holy of holies. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you're in union with Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is an incalculable privilege that, that we have been given, though we are utterly unworthy. What it means is also that we have access to God by and through Jesus Christ all the time, full, complete access to come into His presence with all our spiritual sacrifices. There's a third privilege that marks a believer, that sets him apart from all other people in all other religions, and that is security in the Lord Jesus Christ, security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture, these truths Peter draws out of the Old Testament, in this case uh, Isaiah 28:16. for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." Wow. And the world is full of people in religion who are totally disappointed. I'll tell you, hell is full of a whole bunch of Muslims that are really disappointed. They thought they were going to end up on green pillows with seventy-two virgins. for blowing themselves up with a lot of other folks. They ended up isolated and alone, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in hell. People in every other religion on the planet are going to be disappointed. They're going to be everlastingly disappointed. They've been lied to. But the one who comes and believes in Him will not be disappointed. He is the cornerstone. Again, the word cornerstone, it's a combination word in the Greek. It simply means the stone that sets all the angles that guarantees the symmetry of the temple of God. And Christ is that cornerstone, and the cornerstone had to be perfect. And whoever believes in Him shall not be disappointed. Literally disappointed. Another way to translate it, maybe, I don't know what all the translations are you may have. Another way to translate that word is deceived. It is the disappointment of deception. And believe me, hell is full of all religious people because everybody worships somebody, as Josh said last night. Hell, there are only religious people in hell. They either worship something or someone outside of themselves or they worship themselves, but they're all worshipers. Hell is full of all religious people who failed to worship the only one who could lead them to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. Believe in Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed because you were not deceived. Those who believe in Christ will never be deceived. He will bring you to glory. Romans 8 says, nothing will ever separate us from His love. Ephesians 1 says He will fulfill His good purpose for us. John 10 says He knows His sheep. He will gather His sheep and He will lose none of them. Jesus Christ then is the perfect, exact, precise One on whom God builds His church 
All the lines coming from Him in every direction make up the perfect temple of God, which is then built of the living stones of believers who come to Him and become the temple of God as well as the priests who give to Him spiritual sacrifices and have constant access. I don't know if you ever look at your Christian life from God's side. I know we always look at it from ours. Did I do that? Did I do this? I prayed and I praised and I worshiped and, uh, and I lived obediently and, and I, I studied the Word of God and I'm growing in grace. And you always kind of look at yourself and say, well, but I'm short of what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. You're Romans 7. I don't do what I ought to do and I do what I don't want to do. And we kind of look at ourselves as uh, insufficient, incompetent, incomplete. But look at it a different way. That prayer you offered, that praise you offered this morning, that act of obedience, those God-honoring thoughts, God-honoring words, and God-honoring deeds, those were all spiritual sacrifices that you humbly set before God that were acceptable to Him because they came in the name of Jesus Christ. You are a holy priesthood. It's, it's easy for us to get focused on the unholy part, isn't it? And that's a reality. And this is where Peter helps us to get past getting sort of stonewalled by the limits of our failures and never understanding that all these things that we do, even as meager as they appear to us, are spiritual offerings to God which have been made acceptable because we are one with Christ. So it is Christ in us offering us an acceptable sacrifice. There's another promise, privilege here, the fourth one, union with Christ, access to Christ, security in Christ. Let's call this affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it has already been declared that Christ is a precious stone in the sight of God, back in verse 4. But here it moves to us. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. This precious value. We know God looks at Christ and says, He is precious. He is choice. But now this is our conviction. We look at Christ and we say, he is precious to us who believe. In John 8, 42, Jesus put it this way, if God is your Father, you would love Me. You would love Me. Back in 1 Peter, look at chapter 1, verse 8, though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. When people ask me, how do you define a true Christian? How do you, how do you identify a true Christian, say, in contrast to a false Christian? Very easy. Love for Christ. 
love for Christ. That's the precious value. That's selling all for the pearl, for the treasure. Loving Christ. Do you love Christ? It's not about what you do because hypocrites can fake anything. And people do all kinds of things for uh, some kind of accolades and affirmation from the people they care about, parents, peers. But what marks a Christian is love for Christ. That's why the negative is if you don't love Christ, you're damned. It's about loving Christ. I was at Shepherd's Conference earlier in the year and ended up with a message where Jesus meets with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, and Peter has disobeyed many times. And now one final time, the Lord says, go to Galilee and wait for Me, and Peter can't wait, so he goes back to his old career, gives up the ministry, goes back to fishing, gets all of his stuff, his paraphernalia, his boat, and goes back to fishing, and the Lord confronts him. And He wants to restore him back to ministry, and He asks him three times the same question, do you what? Do you love Me? You might think there would be a long, long pathway back, a really long pathway back. And you know, you may have seen uh, uh, somebody confronted about their sin and some people set up some kind of long structure to get that person back to where they need to be. Listen, our Lord confronts a sinful guy and He asks him three times the same exact question, do you love Me? And Peter has to say, because it's not obvious, you know my heart, you know I love you. Then he says, go feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That's all he asks. Love me, love me, and serve me. What marks a Christian is love for Christ, a love that says, I want to obey Him, I, I want to honor Him, I want to sing His praises, I want to tell Him my heart cries. I want to live my life for Him. I want to be around His people. I want to be in His Word because I love Him. What marks Christians is this love for Christ that transcends all circumstances, such a love for Christ, even in the midst of persecution, horrible persecution, that it becomes a testimony that overturns the hatred of the persecutor. On the other hand, for those who disbelieve, back to verse 7, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the Word, to this doom they were also appointed. You either love Christ or you're damned. You either love Christ or you're doomed. What does it mean to be disobedient to the Word, to the gospel, disobedient to the gospel that calls you to believe in Christ? You're appointed to damnation. You're appointed to doom if you reject Christ. This is very simple, very definitive. There is no other salvation than through Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but by Me. As a Christian, Christ is everything. You're in union with Christ. You have constant access and communion with Christ. 
you are secure in Christ, He will hold you forever and you will never be disappointed. And you love Christ in return. You love Him because He first what? Loved you. When you live this way, when this is manifestly evident in your life, you will literally be used by God to overturn the animosity of your worst enemy. This is the power of Christ in us. Now that's only halfway through this passage, so we'll look at the other half of it tonight. Father, we ask that You would grant us grace in the measure that we needed in this moment. Some of us need grace to believe in Christ, grace to escape hell, judgment. Some of us need grace though we're already in Christ and He's one with us, but we need grace to understand it, grace to overcome our weakness, grace to overcome our sins. We need enabling grace to increase the power of our witness. Grant us that grace. Open the hearts of these who are here to receive the grace that You readily, lovingly grant us. We thank You for all that is ours in Christ, and we give Him all the glory. Amen.